Hello, and welcome to Two Hearts, a new Who podcast. I'm James. And I'm CJ. And this is the only podcast where if you want voices in the dark, you should listen to ours. And every week here on Two Hearts, we take a look at another episode from the Doctor Who revival. And this week, we look at the delightfully devilish two-parter, The Impossible Planet and The Satan Pit. But first of all, how are you? I am not too bad, thank you for asking. Um, Obviously, Elephant in the Room, it has been a solid, hot little month since we have put out a new episode of our our wonderful little podcast here. And um, while I think we both definitely appreciated the break that we had to take there, uh, we didn't announce it or anything, we just kind of dropped off the face of the planet. So I do apologise for the um, unscheduled absence, um, but on the plus side, we've both come out of it mildly rejuvenated i would say um we're both excited to still be talking about doctor who um yeah it's i will say it is it is lovely to be back uh it's another tuesday night recording we're going to be doing these permanently from now on because we love the kind of like messy energy that we bring to these (laughs) ones um it's all happening really yeah yeah and i would say any goodwill that i did have from our rest is probably dissipated by this point but i'm not going to let that spoil a good time um, the other thing, obviously, is that actually in the break, uh, between episodes, uh, James and I actually managed to see each other in the flesh for the first time this year, which is really nice. It was, it, it was really nice. Uh, COVID restrictions around Australia between, well, between certain states have, uh, eased up a little bit. And so they're allowing a little bit of travel again now. Um, and I went to pick up CJ from the airport and, uh, I ended up crying, not because I got to see one of my best friends for the first no, time that would be in too you know, easy. six months. That would be too easy. No, no, I started crying because I saw a straight couple reunite. And while I don't like straight people, this was particularly <laughs> beautiful to watch. Um, so I'm sitting there in the in the little pickup lane, just like, oh my God, love is amazing. Um, and, and then, yeah, when CJ arrived, I, I yelled at him for taking so long. So- yes, you did. You were very angry with me. But I also appreciate you picking me up from the airport. So I guess we're at a neutral kind of space right now. Um we are. We are. About, we're countering out each other. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but it was really nice to go to Adelaide. It was really nice to see my family and my friends and my dream co-star, James. And uh, but I'm now back in Sydney and we're separated again. And it's just it's awful, but I'm dealing with it. Um, but you don't care about that. You want to hear about Doctor Who, don't you? They do. The kids do want to hear about the Doctors and the Whos. Uh, So we do actually have a little bit of news to cover this week before we dive into uh, the two-parter. So I guess top of the the docket, as they say, is the official synopsis and a couple of, um, like, I guess, screenshots have been released for the upcoming um, holiday special, Revolution of the Daleks. Uh, CJ, would you like to um, read the synopsis? I would like to do that. He doesn't have it open, folks. <laughs> yes, and in my host to um, spell it, I wrote in Revolutiono of the Daleks-o. Synopsis-o. Um, <laughs> that's not helpful and it mildly racist, probably. Um, okay. All right. Okay. So the synopsis for... I- I'm actually really excited about it. It seems to poke... Or poke. It seems to hint at a particularly interesting concept for this story. The synopsis is 
the upcoming festival special will see the return of two, one of the Doctor's biggest and most feared enemies, the Daleks. The Doctor is locked away in a high-security alien prison, isolated, alone, with no hope of escape. Far away on Earth, her best friends Yaz, Ryan and Graham have to pick up their lives without her. But it's not easy. Old habits die hard, especially when they discover a disturbing plan forming, a plan which involves a Dalek. How can you fight a Dalek without the Doctor? Um, so I, I really like this synopsis only because of what it hints at in terms of Yaz, Ryan and Graham and their relationship away from the Doctor and having to deal with suddenly being dropped back on Earth again, which is not something that... Doctor Who, at least in the last few years, has, like, dared to kind of grapple with seriously. Because um, usually within the next, like, the first opening five minutes, the Doctor's back and they're, you know, dealing with whatever alien menace is menacing them that day. Um, so I like the idea that they're having to deal with this Dalek threat on their own. Um, obviously, time will tell when the actual episode comes out, but it makes me excited for the episode. What about you? Yeah, I... Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I I would say that I am excited for this. Um, I don't love that it's another like lone Dalek, another holiday special. And I know that you know uh, if you've been paying any attention to the behind the scenes stuff that like there's going to be a lot of Daleks. Um, but again, like that the official synopsis is just essentially the same as Revolution of the Dalek, but you know this time the Doctor's not there. Um, I, I do find that a little bit disappointing. Um, again, I, I ride hard against using the Daleks in the way that uh, New Who does use them. Um, but yeah, you know, you're right. The concept of them having to deal with life without the Doctor um, in in a very real sense is quite interesting. Um, you've also got the two screenshots they've released. One of them... Or, what, okay, well, one of them is uh, Ryan, Yaz and Graham sitting around a kitchen table together with a lens flare for some reason. Um, <laughs> and they're looking... I think they're playing a board game uh i'm not sure but the point is they're obviously quite sad without the doctor that's a thing we'll deal with and then the other screenshot is um is jody whittaker as the doctor uh she is and the only way i can describe this accurately is she looks like she is cosplaying as one of the tethered from us um she's in a red jumpsuit her hair is wet and slicked back and she is scrawling uh, like uh, numbers on the wall of her prison cell. Um, it is quite a striking image. It's nice to see the doctor, um, you know, sort of without the iconic outfit, a little bit disarmed, obviously. There's uh, some theories floating around about what the numbers on the wall actually represent, which I think CJ wants to talk about a little bit. Yeah, it's an interesting little, uh, little uh, theory that I've seen uh, and I fuck with, um, which is that she isn't, marking time necessarily but is trying to remember her past lives it's cool obviously the sheer amount of uh, notches on that wall is ludicrous if that was true <laughs> um but it's a cool little concept nonetheless um i do like how like her slicked back hair and change of garb makes her look a bit lesbianic can i say that uh, it does. She's She's got a touch of the sapphic going on. She does. On. Uh, we love to see it. We do love to see it. We do love to see it. That's what we're here for. Um, I, I'm, I'm all about it. I'm all about it. Um, and we'll probably get into greater detail about our feelings about Jodie Whittaker and this current TARDIS team uh, in our little special before the actual episode airs later in the year. Um, but obviously it's big news uh, and we wanted to touch on it just briefly before we went into the episode. Do you have anything else to add, James? Yeah. 
Um, there was one other thing that caught my eye on. Uh, sorry, excuse me. I have to accept some terms and conditions to read this. Apparently, um, on Halloween there is another one of those like fable Doctor Who watch-alongs for Blink, which is very exciting um, oh. because Blink is a masterpiece, as we all know, because it came from Stephen Moffat. Um, but yeah, no, mm-hmm. look, it's it's a cool concept uh, to to do a little watch-along with Blink. It's a really fantastic episode. It's happening on Halloween. You can do a little tweet along with the hashtag. Don't blink is what it looks like. Um, we'll put it in the show notes. Could be fun. Who knows? Um, it will be fun. Yeah. I mean, even though I don't personally uh, go in for them, mostly because like they're all on UK time and it's hard to follow it here in Australia. Um, mm, totally. It's nice reading the tweets and when the actual creators of the episodes tweet along and give out tidbits of information, the short stories that accompanied the original run were really great and fantastic to see. So here, you know, fingers crossed, we'll get some more of that kind of content going. Um, I, I've just thought of some other Doctor Who news and it's not really Doctor Who news, but it's kind of adjacent to that, which is um, I've been listening to the David Tennant does a podcast with podcast, obviously, Um which you should all go listen to because I didn't realize just how magnetic a voice he has in your ear. Um, and I've really enjoyed the discussions he's been having with like various different celebrities. He does a great one with Catherine Tate. Uh, I just listened to the one he did with Neil Gaiman. And I don't even really like Neil Gaiman, but I really liked their discussion. So that was good. But next week, or actually today, because it's already come out uh, on the day I'm recording. So it'll be in the past tense by the time you listen to this. He's got an episode with Billy Piper. Yes, the Billy Piper. The Billy Piper. I did see a news site that was like, oh, uh, Billy Piper and David Tennant reunited for Doctor Who. I'm like, that's just a lie. (laughs) um, What, a news article lied? That's crazy. Crazy. Shocking. Uh, But, you know, look, we're we're both obviously excited for that episode. I think you also said he did an episode with Jodie Whittaker. Is that right? Yes, he did, actually. Oh, I completely forgot about that. Yes, he did an episode with Jodie Whittaker, Mm. um, which was revelatory in the sense that what you see is what you get with Jodie Whittaker. I didn't realize just how much, I'm not saying that to be mean or cruel about her portrayal as the doctor, but she really is the doctor on screen and off screen as well. And I find that fascinating with Mm. certain actors when they are that person so vividly in their entire life. Um, You know, because like Tom Baker is also very, very much like that. Um, and that's great, like, bit of um, comparison to make. Um, very complimentary. So, um, truly. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's one of those things, that, like, I'll be listening to it before we do our little season 12 rewatch. Uh, and so, if you want to listen along and know what we're talking about, check out David Tennant's podcast. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, as is customary on our show... We're going to talk about Doctor Who now. <laughs> um, so, without further ado, let's dive right into the two-parter, The Impossible Planet and The Satan. We've gone beyond the reach of the TARDIS's knowledge. Not a good move. Oh! Entering night shift. This writing is old. Impossibly old. People, look at that. Real people. That's us. Hooray! The Beast and his armies shall rise from the pit... Whatever it is down there is not a natural phenomenon. That's a black hole. But that's impossible. The Impossible Planet and the Satan Pit are episodes 8 and 9, respectively, of season 2 of the Doctor Who revival. They are directed by James Strong and technically written by Matt Jones, although Russell T Davies should probably be credited because of some pretty hefty rewrites. Um, 
IMDB is how we begin all of our little plot synopses. And, oh, oh, honey, we're going to have a lot of plot to talk about today. So I apologize in advance for everything I'm about to read. But here we go anyway. So IMDB, uh, when the Doctor and Rose become stranded on a planet orbiting a black hole, they find a human expedition crew and their servants, the Ood, being terrorized by the devil. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, like, let's just let's yeah. just get right to it. Right into it, yeah. Uh, and for part two, the Doctor risks his life to investigate the pit and is forced to make a terrible decision while Rose and the crew fend for their lives against the Legion of the Beast. Um, pretty decent, honestly. It's funny because, like, I remember reading these synopses and thinking, that's a cool show. I would watch that show. And then I remembered that, like, these are just two episodes of an entire show and they're not indicative at all of what the rest of it will be like. No, no. I would definitely argue these two episodes stand out quite a bit in season two. Um, but that is okay because we really need to get through my um, dense plot description. <laughs> so let's do it. I might even speed this bit up. We're not, we're not sure yet. <clears throat> uh. The Doctor and Rose arrive on Sanctuary Base 6, a research base on a planetoid generating a massive amount of energy and a gravity funnel that's orbiting a black hole. The crew are drilling down to find the energy source, but the planet is unstable, resulting in frequent earthquakes, the most recent of which collapses the sector of the base that the TARDIS is parked in, stranding the Doctor and Rose. As the two get used to the idea of being trapped in this timeline forever, they get to know the crewmates of the base, and the strange slave race of aliens who staff it, the Ood. Unbeknownst to the crew, archaeologist Toby Zed has started to hear whispers from an ancient evil lurking below the planet's surface, and before long, he is possessed by the mythical beast. Under the influence of the beast, Toby proceeds to kill his co-worker Scooty, as the Ood also begin to show signs of telepathic interference from an unknown source. The drill finally reaches its destination, and the Doctor volunteers to investigate its findings with Chief Scientist Ida. While Rose stays above ground with a concerned Danny, the Ood's handler, Toby, and the reluctant captain. Upon reaching the bottom of the shaft, the Doctor and Ida discover a buried ancient city built around a large trapdoor. As the door begins to open, above ground, the Ood all become possessed by the Beast, who now announces himself to the crew as Satan. Please welcome to the stage, Miss Satan Pitt. After posturing about his great and all-encompassing power, the Beast cuts off communication between the Doctor and the crew before launching an assault on the above-ground folks. Working together, the crew escapes through a dangerous ventilation shaft adventure, uh, which results in the death of the security man and the revelation that Toby is still possessed. Meanwhile, the Doctor repels into the pit uh, to greet whatever darkness awaits, chatting with Ida about faith and whatnot on his way down. Reaching the end of his rope, the Doctor takes a leap of faith and descends into the darkness. As Rose and the gang board the rocket ship to escape the planet, believing the Doctor to be dead, the Doctor encounters what can best be described as a big sexy devil. Here, the Doctor decipher ancient... <laughs> the Doctor deciphers ancient ruins which depict the Disciples of the Light trapping the beast in the pit and decides to destroy the planet, trusting that Rose has escaped uh, her assigned damsel role. We'll get to that in a minute. I probably shouldn't have put that in the plot description. Anyway. Above ground, Rose discovers Toby is still possessed and decides to sacrifice her own life to ensure that the beast's, beast's mind does not escape the pit, ejecting Toby from the rocket and dooming it to fall into the black hole in the process. The Doctor finds the TARDIS in the pit, uh, boards it, saves everybody, and the Doctor and Rose fly away together. You can tell at the end there I ran out of steam. <laughs> I think you just managed to, 
like summarize a hefty amount of plot expertly and with great gusto. So um, a little round of applause I will give you. There you go. Fantastic. We love to see it. So, uh, the Satan Pit, or the Impossible Planet and the Satan Pit, my voice is tired already. CJ, how do you feel about these two episodes? <laughs> An inauspicious start. Look, um... Classic? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it's a classic. I don't even know. I don't even... The thing is, I never thought this was in dispute, that these were, like, the crown jewels of not only this season, but Doctor Who in general. But it was you who told me that there were a few reviews, or at least in your researching of these episodes, that, like, it wasn't that well-reviewed. Which I'm like, what? At? Oh, please take that out. (laughs) Um... Uh, yeah, it was it was definitely odd because like before we sit down to do our own things, I like to try to seek out the opinions of other people, um, usually from a, a wide variety if I can find them, um, just because it's interesting to see what other people thought about these episodes, not only at the time of airing, but also now that there's been kind of like this YouTube revival of people, you know, talking about Doctor Who. Um and I was shocked to discover that uh, a good chunk of the reviews that I watched were like, mm, it's just a bit of a base under siege episode. It's nothing particularly special, uh, which I find, I mean, incomprehensible because uh, as CJ's already said, like these are crowning jewel achievements for season two. This is the peak of this season, if you ask me. Um, they're just exceptional episodes and... It, yeah, it baffles me that uh, they don't have a more, like, widely beloved um, uh, reputation. Truly. Um, and I think that reputation probably it, it still stands up in, like, critical circles, but, like, maybe not in Doctor Who circles. And I don't know why that would be... Uh, if I was to stick a stab in the dark, it might be that because it doesn't bow down necessarily to the uh, mythology or... Um, the innate heroism of the Doctor. Like, it questions all of these things. And that can be troubling if you are a regular viewer who tunes in purely to see the Doctor triumph against evil, the companion running alongside him, and, like, everything's quite black and white. And this episode not only muddies the waters, but, like, refuses to reveal anything about itself uh, in any kind of satisfying way. For incredible dramatic um, purposes, I think it's, I think it's possibly one of the best episodes that at least the revival has done, and I would put it in a top five list for sure. Mm, absolutely, it's uh, yeah, like, and it's difficult when we talk about episodes that we love this much because uh, it's really easy for us to just default to like it's amazing, bye, um, and we don't want to do that. We do want to try and like sort of um, crack this this nut open and figure out why exactly it resonates with us so deeply. Um, but yeah, it's I would put it up there with with some of the best. Like I I think. You know, we talk about how much I love Hellbent and um, some of what Moffat does. And I think this gets as close to that level of um, the the balancing act that these two episodes make between fun Doctor Who action and just balls to the wall 
introspection and emotional dramatics are it's such a delicate balancing act and this season in particular very rarely pulls it off we were just talking last well last month about (laughs) um in the cyberman two-parter how it wanted to be simultaneously a dumb action movie and a commentary on um you know society and whatnot and it didn't manage that at all and so it kind of failed at both whereas the impossible planet and the satan pit are simultaneously a study in religion and faith and and the concepts that sort of govern humanity and the doctor while also being a very obvious homage to um paul ws anderson's event horizon there is a lot of stuff in here that is uh like a one-to-one with that film and that film is like schlock like proper capital S schlock. It's it's very dark. It's very, you know, quote unquote mature. Um, but the actual, you know, sort of meat of, of that particular film is this kind of very like um, grindhouse, almost like cheesy, over the top, demonic possession, violence story. Um, and so to see The Impossible Planet and the Satan Pit so successfully you know, have an episode where you're almost moved to tears by the fact that the Doctor and Ida have this beautiful conversation about faith and religions across different cultures, and then also have Rose blow up a rocket while saying, go to hell, and you can enjoy both equally, and they mix as equally as they do. I just think it's very impressive. It's also, uh, when you mentioned Event Horizon, it made me think about, like, Russell T Davies' general inspirations. And I think I've spoken before about how he very much takes... He's he's not... He takes from popular fiction, like like comic books, video games, big action films. Like, these are all his bread and butter. And so it doesn't surprise me necessarily that these episodes do owe a large debt to, like, Event Horizon. I think I mentioned Doom to you, the video game, for a, a few mm, times. Um, that's also here. Um, but obviously, it's got that Doctor Who spin on it. And so it's not... It's not a, a, a case of... It's not literal devil at the end of the universe, but it's as close as possible to what it could be in a Doctor Who universe. And I think that's a really... It's just really fascinating the way that they do dive into this story of, like, a potential answer to all religions <laughs> hidden on this planet. Um, I was reading about uh, Russell T originally... Like, he, it was his idea to do this story, um, and they pitched it to Matt Jones to, to write... Um, and about, and specifically wanted to do this story because of, to challenge the doctor's beliefs and how like the universe works. And this is something I fuck with so hard because like, I love, love, love stories that not stories that cut the doctor down to size or like explore his guilt or any of this kind of stuff, but like stories that don't take the rules of the show for granted and don't, don't like uh, stories that just allow something completely new to just open up in front of the doctor and have him try to reconcile that. Um, And ultimately the answer in this episode is to that question is that he doesn't know, as he says, I don't know everything, but I keep traveling to find it. And even though I don't find that as satisfying an answer, it is a perfect encapsulation of everything the show is, does, wants to be. um, And it's amazing that it got told in this kind of story that didn't rely on any of the kind of trappings of the show. Like, it literally gets rid of the TARDIS. It strands the Doctor and Rose here in this, like, on this base. I could talk at yeah, length. I mean, I don't even think... I don't even think he uses a sonic screwdriver, does he? Um, Honestly, not to the best of my memory. And it... Yeah, like, 
I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't at all. Like, it strips him of everything. Even his voice, we're at that point where the beast... Uh, the doctor's trying to talk sense into the crew after the beast has scared them all and it cuts him off because he's making sense. I think that's like literally a line in the show. Um, like, oh, I just love it so much. (laughs) Oh God. We are going to do this thing. I'm sorry, listener. We are going to do the thing where we just end conversations with, I love it. Exactly. It's impossible not to. Um, You made an interesting point there that I want to pick up on. Um, It's the same reason why I think It Takes You Away resonates so much with both of us. Uh, Even though they are obviously fundamentally very different stories and one is much more uh, compassionate and more about a creation myth as opposed to a a myth of destruction or the devil and whatnot. Um, You do have both of them where uh, the Doctor is faced with something unknown and the way that the doctor reacts to uh the unknown and to something outside of their perspective and understanding of of the galaxy is always a really interesting um doctor who story Mm. to your point like it does cut them down a little bit and i like that you know in uh it takes you away it it affects the doctor in such a way where she is genuinely um upset at the concept of not being able to engage with this thing that is unknown to her and to experience something completely brand new and then in the impossible planet and satan pit um it is the complete opposite reaction uh he kind of breaks a little bit like it fundamentally clashes against his understanding of the universe so harshly that the only way he can uh, technically like defeat the enemy in this situation is to simply block out the question entirely. Mm. Like he can't answer the question. And so he just stops. Yeah. It's, it's, you're right. It's that. And it's also refusing to see the situation as the beast puts it and figuring out the situation on his terms, even though he's not sure that that's right. And ultimately, he doesn't know because the resolution to the plot is the Doctor... Ultimately, the resolution to this plot is the Doctor having enough faith in Rose that she will get out of the situation um, alive and trusting... Basically, just putting his trust in the universe, which is his faith, which is his belief. I'm kind of rambling here. Please <laughs> just jump in at any point. No, like, yeah. I, I, know, I know what you're saying. Like, his, his ultimate faith is in humanity for lack of a better uh his ultimate faith is uh, in well, humanity I- but also he he performs an act of faith by not knowing by just acting without knowing the outcome and it's isn't it's funny because i've just thought of this then is that so many doctor who stories especially under stephen moffat hinge on the fact that the doctor doesn't have a plan just bumbles into things and knows that it'll all work out but this is like a proper episode that like makes it starkly clear that he really doesn't know what he's doing half the time and it's just putting faith in the universe to pull him through. Maybe that's too grand a statement to make. I don't know. No, no, I, I know exactly what you mean. Cause I was thinking like, at, okay. So at the end of the episode, um, my little plot description there cuts quite abruptly because the resolution is profoundly abrupt. Um, it is almost, it's like a proper deus ex machina that the TARDIS just happens to be down there as well. Now, there's a lot of ways you could interpret that because essentially the the choice that the Doctor and Rose make at the end kills both of them. Like they are both doomed to die on that planet. Um, and they make peace with that because it stops ultimate evil from escaping. That's, that's fucking awesome. We love all of that. But then the Doctor gets like 
tumbled down like a certain, uh, I don't know, like hole or something. And then like hits his head on something and it's the TARDIS. And it's like, okay, so is this a reward for your faith? Is it a, is it just lazy writing? Uh, there's also the concept that the, um, what are they called? The people that uh, trapped the beast, the, dis- the disciples of light um, also created like a little like um, gravity well at the bottom of the pit so that it catches whoever comes down there so they don't get damaged. And so you're mm. like, okay, well, is it just their science uh, that magically saved the TARDIS and put it in that spot? And I don't think the episode even remotely has a uh, satisfying answer to this one. It's just one of those things where you need the doctor to survive, but you've essentially written a story where this could both um, in a, in a meta sense, in a, in a spiritual sense and in a physical sense, be the end of his story. Well, yeah, completely. And it's interesting what you say about uh, how both of them, both Rose and the doctor unknown to the other choose to, sacrifice both of their lives um without hope or uh, chance of reward which is a little 12th doctor comment for everyone um <laughs> which i know you'll all enjoy um i appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> um it, and i find that I, and this pokes at something that these episodes also do extremely well that the se- rest of the season just has not been able to live up to which is depicting the this Doctor and Rose as wholly good characters. And what I mean by that is, like, Rose is nothing short of a hero in this story. Like, she is an independent, kick-ass action hero in for most of the this, this second episode. Um, and we get possibly the best exploration of their relationship to date i don't know um yeah i I think that uh part of why these episodes stand out for us so much in season two is because um rose's characterization across this two-parter and and the doctors is kind of perfect i want to say um like it inadvertently addresses every single kind of issue that we've had with their dynamics so far and that we will have moving forward as well, which is unfortunate. Um, Cause yeah, to your point, Rose is hyper competent here and not in a, not in a wrong way, like in a proper absorbing the lessons that she's learned from the doctor, absorbing his innate goodness and compassion and ability to see uh, the best in people to help them save themselves, which is something we've talked about before about the doctor inspiring other people to be the hero in that moment. And then Rose gets to be both hero and the inspiring one at the same time to the crew that's left above ground. And so Rose gets this really fantastic little uh, independent arc. The Doctor obviously gets a, an amazing uh, exploration of um, his his faith and his ability to comprehend the universe. And then when they are together, mostly in part one, you get a really interesting exploration of this weird romance thing that season two is doing um, through a very critical lens, I would say. Are you referring to the scene where they discuss the possibility of having a life together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I would like almost devote a whole episode to this scene because of just how much I love it. Um, first of all, the sheer poetry of having them discuss buying a house and settling down while 
galaxies are ripped open above their heads is like sheer poetry. And again, another one of those images that only Doctor Who can do. Um, there's so much to unpack about that particular scene. Um, mostly because of, for me, uh, what it validates about the theory that I've been peddling this season, which is that the Doctor doesn't actually love Rose, uh, and she's either blind or romantically, romantically, uh, fundamentally romantically. Um, and that Rose is either blind or unwilling to admit this fact because of a fear of abandonment. I think it's entirely there in the, in how much she can't articulate the idea of them like living together and how she stumbles over her words. And then the doctor just cuts her off in an abrupt, we'll see. And then she goes, we'll see. And they like, just drop the point entirely. Like I feel her <laughs> so much in that moment, even though I've never had that kind of conversation before, never had that kind of uh, relationship before truly. Um, it, it's just beautiful. It is. It is beautiful. And yeah, to your point, like it obviously does. Uh, it, it plays very well into your running theory about how he doesn't feel the same way about her. Um, it goes to that duty of care stuff again mm. with the doctor and, and the companion, which we know I love so much. Um, it, yeah, it's it's good. I. Uh, it frustrates me because the characters as they're written in this episode... Um, we had this discussion actually about uh, uh, the Madame de Pompadour one. Um, hmm. What's it called? The Girl in the Fireplace. The Girl in the Fireplace. We had this conversation about the Girl in the Fireplace where we said that it's weird that you get like a little pocket episode where the characters go back to being really well written and fleshed out and then we have to go back to what season two needs them to be after that. And this is another situation, except even worse this time, because it's across a complete two-parter and features a very full arc for both of them. Um, And so knowing where season two is going and knowing the kind of uh, cinematic language and text and everything that it applies to their dynamic at the very end of the season, I find it frustrating that they were so willing to leave a very obvious... um, Uh, example of his weird feelings towards her in this episode and then just kind of largely ignore that for the rest of the season. Um, Yeah, it's just... I I think, yeah, this scene is probably doing a lot of heavy lifting for other episodes where it's lacking and that's not uncommon of television in general, I'd say, but usually those episodes, like usually when that's the case, they have more episodes to work with. And so it's these moments are spaced out. Yes. But like they take place over a much longer period of time. So you really do feel it. Whereas Doctor Who has a very short run. And so you can't really afford to be subtle. You've got to really ram those ideas home. Um, I mean, it's less that I I think it's more just like an actual inconsistency in the way that their dynamic is written because Mm. some episodes they're flirty and acting like they're in love. And then other episodes like this one, he's like, no, obviously I love you, but I don't love you like that. Um, And I think the way that the season as a whole leaves their dynamic is if not explicitly romantic, very much the needle moved that way. Um, I mean, I think you look at the way that fans have reacted to their dynamic this season and like, it's not a mistake that that happened. And so it's just weird to me when an episode like this or an episode like Girl in the Fireplace uh, treats their relationship as, uh, I guess, like the thing it started as in season one where Rose is not just this 
uh, oh, all I care about is the Doctor. It's like, all she cares about is the Doctor here as well. But there's a lot more going on with her here. She also cares about the other people around her and... I don't know. It, I just, it's just a little inconsistency that really bugs me because mm. when season two gets these characters right, they are on fire and I adore Rose Tyler. Um, but it does it so inconsistently that I, I find it difficult to develop a, a relationship with her as a character. Totally fair. Totally fair. And like we've said on many occasions that Billy Piper is an incredibly magnetic, charming performer and, does a lot of heavy lifting for this character to get her to the iconic status that she is. Um, she's also iconic because obviously the, like the very first companion to ever like truly be acknowledged as like a person with agency and all <laughs> of those kinds of things, but viewed from our 2020 perspective. Um, yeah, it, this season, the show at this time really does not give these two, the kind of thorough exploration that a modern television viewing audience would expect, uh, necessarily. It is interesting how much people remember them as this love lost, love lorn couple narrative, because I think if they choose to watch it back, they would not get that same impression. Yeah. Well, I mean, the finale certainly we will get there we have very different feelings um, we, we do we <laughs> certainly do but look if, if we want to rein it back in and actually talk about these two episodes mm. instead of season two as a as a whole concept um, again yeah Rose is on fire here this is the Rose Tyler that I absolutely adore mm. um, she's assertive and she's competent and she still has that like oh, there's, there's a scene in um, the Satan pit where uh, once they've lost contact with the doctor and they've escaped from the Ood threat, they, they sort of neutralize them. Um, the captain is like, Hey, look, we've got to get out of here. We're going to get you on the rocket. And she just turns with this like half defeated, but still hopeful crying face. And she's like, no, I'm going to stay. He would want me to stay. Oh. And it's just, it's a way of writing her devotion to him that doesn't feel as cheap as the rest of this season can sometimes mm. do because of the story that they go through here, because they're both faced with such a massive existential evil threat. Um, it feels like a proper, this is the end of the line for both of us, I think. And I would rather be here with him, which does come back in the finale, of course, but again, we'll get to that. <laughs> um, and I just, I just really adore that moment because I think that, if you put a moment like that after two full episodes of her being sassy, assertive, fun Rose again, it makes it much more palatable to the audience as opposed to that being her defining characteristic. You know what I mean? It only comes out after she's been properly at the end of her rope. Mm, mm, I agree. Um, I, 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 you've just got me thinking, sorry, I know this is not, it's not necessarily a tangent, but like the way that she says... I'm just reading the transcript now. The way that she says he's not, I'm telling you he's not. And even if he was, how could I leave him down there on his own? And Mm. she's choking up. It's like those lines could be cliched and the delivery could be cliched. And I think it's just a perfect alchemy with there in that it just all clicks together and makes sense in that moment. Um, And the reason why I say this is because you obviously have mixed feelings about when they kind of not redo, but like, um, 
really capitalize on how this kind of conversation, this moment could happen in Doomsday in the finale. Um, and I'm just really floored by the idea that this is a deliberate mirroring of that. Um, mm. I, yeah. Okay. Obviously, and Rose is one of many characters in this episode. And I was thinking about this the other day, and I don't know, maybe it's too bold a claim to make, but of the episodes we've had so far, I feel like this is the best supporting cast yet. Oh, hundo percento. Uh, there is... There's not a bad performance in here, I don't think. Um, I, I don't I don't love Toby's performance, mm-hmm. um, but it, it's still totally palatable. And the trade-off for that is that you get this, again, that incredible supporting cast. Every member of that space station is... Um, I don't know, they just... Again, like, to your point about what Rose just said, um, what could be a cheesy line or what could be a cliche or a caricature is elevated somehow because everything just comes together so beautifully in this two-parter. And that definitely applies to the rest of the cast as well. Um, Ida is, I think, the standout. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I 100% agree. Um, Ida is just... I don't know. I don't know. Are we just attracted to strong women? I guess that must be it. Because <laughs> yeah, it's always it's always the strong women in every episode that we're like, mm, yes, Stan. Um, cut that. Cut that. <laughs> it's the fuck true. out. It's- <laughs> Um, and I think Ida in a lot of ways is like, uh, look like a, like a proto river song kind of type. Um, you know, she is strong and she's assertive. She goes toe to toe with the doctor. She obviously doesn't have like his extensive knowledge of everything, but she's a very like learned woman, uh, very worldly. She's got her own little like haunting stuff that's going on in her background with her father. She's just... It's the, it's a stunning performance uh, combined with a with a very good script for her character, and I think specifically pairing her and the Doctor up in the Satan Pit and having them isolated from everybody else, which because they spend what ninety five percent of the episode just the two of them together, pretty much, um, and it is a stunning dynamic and it's one of those things where you could see him inviting her on the TARDIS at the end if it wasn't for the fact that that's not how the show works truly truly um and just to go back to what you were just saying a little bit earlier um the line they have in the conversation where uh, this just speaks to the deafness and the incredible kind of um insinuation of the lines in this episode and what they hint at for the larger world beyond when the doctor says do you have a religion and she just says oh no no um just neo whatever the hell her religion is and he's like what do they believe in and she says oh nothing much just the things that men do um instead of a world of possibility as to what her life has been what her upbringing has been like what this religion would have been like like I it's an incredible mm. economy of storytelling all round. Oh, absolutely. And it pairs really well with the fact that when the beast is trying to frighten the crew, he basically like lists through all of their internal fears. And when he gets to Ida, he's like, you know, uh, the, the scientist who's still running away from daddy. And you combine that with the line, just the things that men do. And it just, again, like the economy, like the, the good economics of that, that bit of storytelling <laughs> tell you so much about her character in, in so few words. Mm. Um, it's, yeah, it's a testament to probably Russell T Davies' writing on this one. I, I've never seen him this efficient. I think, I don't remember who said this, but I remember somebody saying that Russell is 
I can't say his first name like I know him. Um, RTD's uh, <laughs> writing is at its best when it's nihilistic. Um, and you see that with season four, with Midnight and Turn Left. You see it with Torchwood Children of Earth, which is just oh my God. stunning, <laughs> stunning, stunning from beginning to end. And uh, this isn't quite that, but it's still... It's still... I don't want to say indulging. Indulging is entirely the wrong word, but it, it is reveling in the unspoken trauma of all of these characters, but not in such mm. a way that's like over the top or like really ham fisted. It's or anything. yeah. It's just really deftly done. Um, mm. And to go back to Ida just briefly, um, there is, maybe you'll disagree with me, but the way that Ida looks on touches speaks about Scooty implies a very interesting relationship that the episode really doesn't do anything with at all, but doesn't need to at the same time. Um, I wrote down in the notes that like, is it a queer relationship? Is it a mother daughter thing? What do we think? But again, it's just another example of like the unspoken, but vast world of these characters and that they occupy that goes unspoken in the episode. And mm, totally. yeah, uh, to, to the point about like Ida's characterization with her parent issues and specifically her dad issues. I read her, um, feelings on Scooty as, as maternal. I think I get a strong vibe of like, I never had somebody care about me the way that I care about this girl. Um, specifically, you know, the way she says like, you know, she was only 20 or, or whatever, however old Scooty was. Um, I, I definitely think that was much more maternal than, um, queer i would say Mm. i i I do like the concept that ida is queer i i think that is again entirely just reading into the mannerisms um same with toby like you know there's there's like there's definitely a little like is he you know kind of vibe going on with toby um but again like to say that calling the calling these characters any remotely near queer is is quite a reach for us today um but again we're a queer show we sometimes like to just kick our foot into the door and say, <laughs> we're going to claim them as gay. So let's do that. <laughs> I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't, you know, like I love labeling people as queer and then walking away with no repercussions. Exactly right. <laughs> Straight people do it all the time. It, look, it, it's an incredible cast of characters, but none more so maybe than your old mate, Gabriel Wolf. Gabriel Wolf, please welcome to the stage the best fucking voice actor to ever grace the halls of Doctor Who. Holy shit, man. All right, I'm good. I had to get that out of my system. Um, So Gabriel Wolf, for those who don't know, uh, or for those who didn't listen to our classic Who episode, Gabriel Wolf is the uh, voice of Sutek the Destroyer, who was... Again, another mythical devil-like creature in uh, the classic Doctor Who story, Pyramids of Mars, who also across the galaxy was sometimes referred to as as Satan and the like. And so now they've brought him back to essentially play another iteration of the devil concept. Um, This is a much more reserved performance than what he gives in Pyramids of Mars. Pyramids of Mars is simultaneously one of the most unnerving and you know, very vintage Doctor Who kind of like hamming it up during the scenery performances that I've ever heard. It's an amazing job. Um, and here, Gabriel Wolf is is the Beast. And the Beast, uh, you've put in the notes here, which I, I really agree with. Um, the concept that the Beast 
I mean, they do find his body eventually, but the body is never the focus. The focus is that he exists as a concept, as an idea within their minds. You know, I think he describes himself as like the dark parts of your mind um, is just where he's always living. And so Gabriel Wolf turns in this performance that is never as frightening as it is in his first scene in this uh, two-parter, but still very ethereal and, and creepy. Mm. Mm-hmm. And having him... Um I think it's a really inspired choice to have him perform the role. Yeah, I think the original idea was that uh, Chris Evans, who was Billy Piper's husband at the time, was going to voice the role. But uh, I don't know, he was, wasn't was available or something along those lines. And so they got Gabriel Wolf to make this, to do the performance. And I think it's a really inspired choice and a happy accident either way. Um, because it really... It really, like, by having the voice of Sutek, another god, but a purely physical one, uh, as he is in Pyramids of Mars, voice this devil, which is not only conceptual, but claims to be all of them, implies so, so very much in terms of, like, it, not only does it lend uh, credence and, um, what's the word I want? Not, it lends uh, credibility to the idea uh, to to the theory that the, this beast is laying down, that it is all iterations of the devil. Um, but it makes it, yeah, it just adds that little tie in for those who know um, to all of these gods that have been portrayed across Doctor Who and that every single god we've seen up to this point could possibly just be reverberating out from this point. I think it's a really, really, really good choice. And I, he doesn't really get much chance to sort of play around other than in the look at, don't look at, turn away. Don't oh, fuck. I fucked it up already. Uh, don't turn around scene with Toby. Um, but that scene itself is well worth the price of admission. Yeah. I, I really like that concept that you were just laying down that, um, you know, any godlike or devil-like creature that the Doctor has encountered across his entire history was uh, a growth from this particular beast um, it is is qu- quite a concept, um, and uh, it's interesting. And again, to compare it to. Um, uh, it takes you away. So in It Takes You Away, the Doctor comes up against a creation force uh, that is essentially a god onto itself, which is the stuff of um, like children's fairy tales to the to the Time Lords. And so this thing, the the Solitrax. In that episode, it's the Solitrax, yeah. Yeah. So the Solitrax um, comes from outside of our reality is where that thing comes from and so now going up against the beast which claims it comes from before our reality is the thing that fucks up the doctor the most it it completely throws him off his equilibrium because being a time lord implies a lord over all of time and so if you present him with something that is ostensibly from before the time that he is able to experience and manipulate through his magic box um you present him with an impossible creature um and I like how much he just refuses to accept that that's what it is when he eventually finds the body of it you know he says like I grant you your physical being like I'll, I'll, I can't deny that anymore but he still can't accept the fact that this he might actually be facing down with the devil or with Satan itself mm. um, and that the episode refuses to 
confirm or deny what the beast actually is in the end, I think is uh, another one of its like massive uh, points in, in the win column because it leaves it so that the doctor doesn't know, we don't know, and it just makes that thing all the all the scarier that it wasn't just revealed to be like, oh, it's just an alien from Klaxophon Five, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you you poke at an idea which I really uh, am interested in, which is that because the beast doesn't fit the Doctor's definition of the universe, not only does he have to reject it, but he's outright host- hostile to that idea, mm. and. Even though at the end he's like, well, I travel to keep on discovering. It's clear that this is a discovery he does not want and that he will... And that he wants to destroy, for lack of a better word. Because maybe somewhere deep down and he believes himself to be not only the last of the Time Lords, but the Lord of Time. You know, there's the line in, um, in Girl of the Fireplace where... Uh, this is so tangentially related, um, but where King Louis is like, oh, I'm the King of France. And the doctor's just like, yeah, well, I'm the Lord of Time. And it's like, it's a joke then, but it really implies a lot about the doctor's state of mind, about how he views himself and how he views himself as the, as at the top of this universal pecking order. It's something that we'll see play out over the season, over the David Tennant's entire run, I, which I can't say for certain was entirely planned, but it feels, <laughs> feels like at least there's some through line there. Um, and I really, really, I really like, as we said at the top of the episode, I really like the idea that everything that the doctor essentially is, doesn't have to necessarily be true. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I was thinking about this this morning and a very interesting wrinkle to this. And obviously the nature of the show is that when this was written, they didn't know and blah, 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 cool, whatever. We're going to have is fun this with a, this anyway. Is this a um, timeless child retcon? This is. We're going to finally talk about the timeless child. Um, the thing about the timeless child concept now, which, okay, just a small side note here. When I was thinking about this this morning in the shower, it was one of those things where I feel like nobody fully appreciates what the timeless child implies about the doctor until you remember it and think about it again fresh for the first time because it is such a massive monumental shift in that character's makeup and dna that it now kind of throws everything off of balance and so when you look at a story where the doctor is dealing with something from before time an immortal being before time now you have to wonder well, where the fuck did the doctor come from? Mm. Like, is that going to be something that we have to tackle in the future? Because you've essentially reestablished that the doctor is not just capable of regenerating a few times. Like the doctor is an immortal being that manipulates time. He, it, well, they are a God. And if they come from a race of, of God-like creatures, similar to like the disciples of the light or whatever, like whoever existed in this before time, you know, is the Doctor now a part of this, like, much grander mythological, possibly religious scale creation race? Um, and it's just interesting when you look back at an episode like this, and we so rarely get to look at episodes that tackle faith in this way. Um, and you get to now sort of think about the the implications of, um, I guess, where the show is headed in the future. 
Yeah, that is interesting. Um, but we'll get into our thoughts about The Timeless Child in a future episode where we talk about Chris Chibnall, Jodie Whittaker, and all things 13 related. Um, the problem at hand, though, is this episode. There's one aspect we haven't actually touched on yet, which has proved to be, like, a defining Russell T icon. The Ood. The Ood. And, look, the Ood are amazing. Like, uh, you want to talk about, like, iconic mainstays of Doctor Who that have really kind of, like, you know, stuck around. Like an iconic mainstay would. Oh, God, I just repeated myself in a bad way. But the Ood are particularly brilliant. Um, They are super creepy, but also approachable at the same time. Um, They have a really cool way of communicating. The slave race stuff... Hmm. I don't vibe with, but to be fair, I don't remember Planet of the Ood, and apparently that does tackle that a little bit. So Yeah, um, that episode was specifically written because there wasn't enough time in this episode to properly grapple with that idea. Yeah, look, I, I think the Ood... Uh, the, the, in, the, 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 I think the Ood's enduring popularity is evidenced by the fact that they continue to show up um, not necessarily as, like, characters, but just as images that represent Doctor Who. Um, for instance, the Time Lord Victorious, one of the only, apart from the Daleks, one of the only recurring uh, aliens that is in that series is, uh, an Ood, you know, uh, the Ood. I remember, I think it's in The Doctor's Wife where it's, uh, there's an Ood in that episode as well, and Stephen Moffat specifically said, he included it to maintain some consistency and show the audiences that it's the same universe and that the same aliens are going to recur. Um, so the Ood just keep popping up. And I think that that is just testament to like how good an idea they are and how replicatable and instantly like you just without sounding too stupid, um, you just get them the minute you see them. And do you know what I mean by that? Like, yeah, I, do. I absolutely do. Because like, you know, you, you're confronted with them, the way they introduce them, like the door just opens on a close shot of them. And like, for those who haven't seen the Ood, they're not particularly pretty boys. Um, they've got like the weird, like tentacle mouths. Like they're, they're very Cthulhu inspired is what I would Ooh, say. They're very yeah. in. And so when they look like that, they are, and you know, like they come into the room and they're like, we must feed, we must feed, we must feed. And then it cuts to credits and then it comes back and like he shakes his little communication orb. We must feed you. And then that immediately recontextualizes their face. And the next time you look at them, you just feel this like sympathy mm. for them. Like they're kind of, and look, I mean, not to get too cutesy, but they're, they're kind of beautiful in their own way. They're, I, I really sympathize and and feel for the ood as as a collective as a physical design i think they look amazing um yeah they're, they're just they're fantastic and I, I do look forward to seeing more of them in the future mm. mm-hmm. i completely agree and also you've 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 picked on something else i put in the notes which is like i feel like the impossible planet has two of the best cliffhangers modern doctor who's done since uh, ever not only that one before the the title sequence where it's just like endless hordes of Ood just descending upon the Doctor and Rose going, we must feed, we must feed. So, so hokey, but so enjoyable. But the cliffhanger to the Impossible Planet is downright, like, apocalyptic. So, it's like a three-way cliffhanger. Rose and the crew are, like, menaced by the Ood who've become possessed by the beast. 
while the planet's like gravity shield is com- collapsing and it starts falling into a, the black hole that it's been um, orbiting around. Meanwhile, like the beast is like rising up out of the pit and de- like laughing a maniacal demonic laugh. It's just like everything that could possibly go bad goes bad. And it's, oh, I just love it so much. Mm, it is good. And it's something like, I know we've, we've obviously gotten a bit bogged down in like the, the concepts of this episode, but I think uh, it does a disservice to not talk about the way that uh, just structurally speaking, they are shockingly well made uh these look stunning mm. like the the budget was obviously quite high on what they could do here murray gold is firing on all cylinders mm-hmm. this time around um it is yeah it's it's a shockingly good bit of television um that it's one of those stories that does transcend doctor who and just becomes like a genuinely compelling bit of television and to the point that you made earlier because it doesn't rely on things like the TARDIS or the sonic screwdriver or like I think Time Lord has only said like once or twice like there is I don't think it's said at all so much yeah well exactly there's there's so much in here that is just a very deeply viscerally and emotionally satisfying sci-fi horror romp it is it is yes supremely satisfying on all fronts it I was gonna say like it just looks so so very good um I think this episode has the record for the most expensive shot ever, which is the, um, which goes against everything we've been saying about how economic it is. Uh, but it has the shot with Scooty is, um, outside of the, the base and sort of like drifting is because she's been sucked out into the, um, into the vacuum. Uh, they had to film underwater and like it, it looked a million bucks and I love it. Not to wrap up the conversation, but I think, a, a good place to end this conversation would just be on David Tennant. Um, we've had our problems. <laughs> we've had our problems with Mr. Tennant. Um, we've been open about that. But there was one moment in this two-parter that, like, actually made me a little bit teary for no reason other than just it was a really lovely, perfect moment that uh, he performs very very well when i was first watching this episode i like and when i say it first i mean like in 2006 even then i was like 12 years old i remember thinking that there was so much exposition and so much information like thrown at you in the very first episode which i found extremely dull as a kid um and one of the the worser elements of that is the doctor's impassioned speech about humanity in the first scene where he's talking to the the crew but then reading that watching this episode back and the line where the doctor says when it comes down to it why did you come here why did you do that i'll tell you why because it was there i i just i i don't know if i can put into words why i love it so much i don't know if it's particularly david tennant i don't know if it's the lines themselves i feel like it is more the power of that line the, what it implies about humanity and what ultimately what this episode is saying about faith, which is that you don't need to see something to believe in it or to compel you to do something. You just need that human spirit and that human drive and you can achieve mm. incredible things. Um, totally. And, totally. And like, sorry. No, I was going to say, like, to your point earlier about how Russell T. Davies' is writing is at its best when it's quite nihilistic. Um, these episodes 
while dealing with a very dark subject matter and being quite comfortable uh, sort of like sitting in that murk for a little while, our book ended by profoundly hopeful emphatically pro-human and pro-faith statements, you know? Um, the scene you're talking about, which culminates with uh, David Tennant delivering that really wonderful moment of like, I'm going to hug you now, is that okay? <laughs> like, it's so over the top, but it, it works because everybody just is vibing in that scene. All the performances so perfectly interlock. David Tennant is again playing it underdeveloped, like under, which is again where I think he, he does best. I don't like his big speeches. I like when he just is a person in that role. And then obviously again at the very end, um, Mm. you've got when he is reunited with Rose, it feels so (sighs) genuinely good. Like just unequivocally good it's it's food for the soul to see them embrace each other that way because and to my point earlier about how rose when she refuses to leave him down there is because they have been through this incredibly traumatic experience together this time it feels like by the time they're reunited it is a reunion it's not just oh well of course they're going to be safe because it's the end of doctor who it's like no no there was a point where they both genuinely were going to die. Mm. Um, and so to have that reunion go as well as it does. And th- this ties into a another thing about the performance, but also a little behind the scenes tidbit. Um, this ends with, well, the, the two-parter ends with um, the captain before he flies off in his rocket with his crew. He asks the doctor through the intercom, like, you never really told us who you were. And Rose and the doctor just look at each other and he's just like, we're the stuff of legend. And obviously, again, you've got another commentary going on there about like this concept of an immortal being with a magic box that shows up to save people being a mythical, being a mythical thing, being a legend. And then behind the scenes, that was actually the last scene that Billy Piper and David Tennant ever filmed together. Well, at, at this point in, in their run. And so it's just when you know that and when you go back and you watch it, combined with the full weight of the story behind it, it is just a profoundly beautiful ending. Uh, I can't say it any better than that. Like, that's entirely right. The When she walks onto the set and... Oh, onto the TARDIS, I should say. And he, David Tennant sees her and they just smile, run together, hug. Like, oh, my heart melted. Um, mm. it, it does speak to... I, I think that reaction is, for me at least drawing very heavily on nostalgia for these characters and not on what we have discovered about these episodes in this relationship uh, through doing this podcast. Um, but it, besides all of that, it is just a genuinely heartwarming, amazing moment. And that very final line, it, it, this is something I said to you like only a few before we started recording it's a big, bold... I'm, I'm all about the bold theories here. I'm a bold type. And, um... Yep, 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 yep. No, no, I said it for that reaction. <laughs> Long-time listeners will know what that <laughs> reference was. <laughs> um, but this could have been the very last episode of Doctor Who. And I don't mean that seriously. Obviously, I love Doctor Who. I want to see it continue long after I'm dead. But uh, just in terms of, like, how apocalyptic this episode gets, how much it challenges the Doctor, how much it also challenges the Doctor, but also completely reinforces everything about him and the show in its ethos as well. It's 
kind of a perfect summation of everything. And I never... It's funny to sort of say that because, like, there's never a perfect summation of Doctor Who, especially considering it's been running for odd 50-plus years. Any ending is going to feel... At this stage, any ending to the show is going to feel, like, less than. But... I would argue hell-bent, but... Uh, okay, so actually, no, no. Let's let's seriously have this conversation for a minute. Oh, We're gonna... <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> no, 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 no. No, okay, no, no. This isn't the way you... This is not going to go the way you think. A little Last Jedi reference for you there. Mm, um, be with me. No, okay. The reason why I think hell-bent should be the end of Doctor Who is the same reason why we're talking about this being an appropriate ending for Doctor Who because it takes the character to one of his or her natural conclusions you know it pushes the ideology and the the person as far as they can possibly go down a certain path in Hellbent it pushes him to his absolute corruption breaking point and says that hey this isn't going to be how his story ends he will go on and be the the stupid man with a box that's just trying to help people right and then in the satan pit it takes him to the end of his faith to the end of his understanding of the universe it shows him something brand new it shows him afraid of it and it shows him going like cool all right well like that was that was it that was like the thing that i've been waiting for my entire life to be shown something new in the same way that um it takes you away does this a little bit as well um And so I think on that basis, you could argue that the show could have ended with Hellbent or this one. Or the Doctor Falls. But that's... (gasps) Oh my God. I I just wish I could fast forward through the next couple of years of us podcasting so we could talk about the Doctor Falls. Because, yes, that is quite an ending. Yeah. And also, the ending, and I refuse to listen to the episode that came after it well twice upon a time more like no no go on i want to hear what you're gonna say <laughs> no that, that that was my answer to it uh no, no. <laughs> <laughs> just no there's there's the doctor falls and then there's the woman who fell to earth the titles even match up <laughs> oh they totally do they totally do twice upon a time is such a yeah. You know what? We're not going to turn this episode into a twice upon a time bashing situation. Oh, don't you just want to talk about Moffat though? No. Okay. No, no, no. We, we are. Look, it's getting late. It's a Tuesday. We're getting off track. We've, we've been talking for a while. Um, I guess as a rapid quick fire to wrap us up again, David Tennant's performance is amazing. When he is descending into the pit and he is simultaneously having a conversation with Ida about faith and with himself, it is maybe his best work as the doctor so far Mm. well so far definitely um and i think it's worth noting and just bringing up that earlier in our rewatch here we did say that we didn't feel like he truly became the doctor until this two-parter and so to now be up to that point and to see it in in such beautiful fruition is just chef kiss i love it (laughs) i'm so glad to hear it and you're absolutely right um if i were to as to give some summation, some final points. I guess I want to just talk about two really good Rose moments that I really fuck with. Um, we wouldn't do that in our Rose section. We'd leave it till the end. Of, of course, because I forgot until right now to even bring them up. Uh, it's Honestly, it's just, uh, just two lines that I really like. Uh, obviously, I really like this episode's script, especially, which is why I keep quoting lines. Um, one of which is during the Doctor and Rose conversation when she says... "I." I I'm, just the way that Billy Piper says everyone leaves home in the end. 
and what that obviously implies for her mentality at this stage, like she's entirely ready to leave. She does not need to return to earth to be happy. She doesn't need to see her mum again to be happy. Um, and we will see all of that again in the finale. Um, I just really like that line. And the other one as well, which struck me so much when I watched it is the one where Rose says, she's like just wishing, she's saying goodbye to the doctor before he goes down into the pit. And she says, it's funny because people back home think that space travel is going to be all whizzing about and teleports and anti-gravity, but it's not, is it? It's tough. And because this episode has done such a good job of depicting space travel as something, not only that is like extremely difficult to do, but is that, is that, um, marker of human ingenuity and exploration. It, it just, I don't want to say sums up again, because I said that so many times, but it just sums up everything this episode wants to say about human, humanity. Uh, it does. The point's getting away from me. I'm just saying lines that I like now. Should we do our ratings? No, uh, we, we should. Uh, to wrap up your point a little bit more elegantly than you maybe Please. just did. Um, <laughs> like, if you look back at, uh, what was it? Um, New Earth at the beginning of this season, mm-hmm. where at the very end, you've got that massive speech by the Doctor where he's like wet and he's all like, Ooh, I love humanity. Oh, it's so fucking <laughs> Oh, yes, I do. Like, yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, you've got that massive moment and it just falls so completely flat. And then at the end here, you've just got people barely hanging on to life, but exhibiting the best of humanity. Um, it's it's a show-don't-tell situation, you know? Um, and so I, I do think that despite the fact that this episode, these episodes are literally about Satan trying to claim a, a, a role in the universe again, um, they are profoundly hopeful and optimistic about the human condition. On that note, mm. let us deliver our objective ratings. Episode one, I would give an A minus two, and uh, the minus is for the inelegance of the exposition dump that it gives. Um, even though it is enjoyable to watch as an adult, uh, it was mind-numbingly boring as a child. Um, and then truly an A plus for Satan Pit. It's a perfect episode, top to tail. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, I am going to go with an A for The Impossible Planet um, and an A plus for The Satan Pit because I enjoy The Impossible Planet as much as I enjoy The Satan... As much as I enjoy The Satan Pit. Um, but The Satan Pit is just one of those things that, like, you need to give it absolute top marks. It, it does something so profound with Doctor Who. Um, so, yeah, I, I think... I think we're pretty much in agreement that this is as good as season two gets. Yeah, we are in for a very interesting ride of episodes next. Um, what are we talking about next? Look, okay, so next we're going to be talking about the much maligned, but I am a staunch defender of, <gasps> Love and Monsters. Holy shit, folks. Love and Monsters. Uh- Oh, we are going to have so much fun and I guarantee you, you have no idea how this episode's going to go. <laughs> no, you truly don't. But that will have to wait until next week, unfortunately. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, we made it to the end of another week, folks. <laughs> cool. Um, As always, thank you for listening every week. Uh, if you want to drop us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show, as it helps us grow and makes us feel good that'd be great we recently had a tweet go viral so we're very excited about that um thank you to recently i think it was like two weeks ago at this point but (laughs) (laughs) it feels still very recent to me uh and thank you to josh nares uh for that little retweet and for the little love that you gave us appreciate it uh yes yes of always as always a special shout out to, to josh Snares, everybody's favorite doctor who queer uh which we aspire to be every week um if you do want to reach out to us and have your questions or thoughts read on the show you can do so by emailing us at two hearts podcast at gmail.com that's to the word or you can find us on twitter instagram and facebook at two hearts pod the number two you definitely can. And I have been CJ, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Theatricalum. Still very liking my new handle. Nobody's said anything to the contrary so far. It's been going quite well. I like it. <laughs> Thank you, James. <laughs> um, and as always, I have been James. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and OnlyFans at OMG More James. Did you say OnlyFans? Honey! <laughs> we are diversifying our Two Hearts content. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. I, for one, can't wait to see the spicy content you put up on OnlyFans. Oh, that's it. It's You know what? I'm going to cut that joke right there because this is technically a family-friendly show. Um, uh, again, thank you so much for listening, folks. We appreciate that you took that little gap with us. We hope that your four weeks without us were acceptable at the very least. Bearable. Um, we know that it's hard to live without us. We're very, very popular. Truly. Um, yeah, so we'll see you in uh, two weeks' time for a very fascinating discussion on uh, um, Love and Monsters. And until then, be kind to each other, be safe, and uh, take it easy. Bye! <laughs>